We are now going to spend some time studying the Bible together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible now to Daniel chapter 1. We're continuing this new series in Daniel. We started it last week with kind of a prequel from Jeremiah 28 and 29. Uh, this week we're continuing the series, and the series is called What to Do When the World Falls, to, falls Apart. What to Do When the World Falls Apart. We recognize that we live in, in trying times, in difficult times, and crazy times. And Daniel is a great example of someone obeying the letters to the exiles that Jeremiah wrote that said, invest in this difficult place and difficult time that you live. Trust God. Trust that God has good plans for you. Trust that God is a God of hope. And invest and pray for the city that God has called you to. This difficult place, this difficult time. Invest, love the people around you. And that was told to the exiles in Jeremiah 29. This week, we're going to start unfolding Daniel chapter by chapter. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. So go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 1, and we're calling it this week, Stay Faithful in Babylon. Stay faithful in Babylon. That is what God is calling us to do, to stay faithful in Babylon. Throughout the scripture, Babylon is symbolic of the city of man in contrast to the city of God. And throughout the scripture, this is a story literally about historic Babylon, But then again and again in other places in Scripture, we're told that any city that sets itself up against God, any nation, any people group, any any manifestation of the world living by our own flesh can be seen as a form of Babylon. And so this applies to us today. Um, I read this quote the other day, if the success of your plan relies on 18 to 24-year-olds being responsible, then maybe it's not a very good plan. What do you think about that? Let me say it again. If the success of your plan relies on 18 to 24-year-olds being responsible, then it's probably not a very good plan. Do you know where that came up, where the context of that came? It was the University of North Carolina. Um, They'd started back to college in-person classes, and after a couple of weeks, they'd had too many spikes with the coronavirus. So in response, they had to kind of shut things down again. And they actually traced these outbreaks to some frat parties and some dorm parties. And the editor of the school newspaper, arguably one of the great leaders of this group of 18 to 24-year-olds, said, if the success of your plan relies on 18 to 24-year-olds being responsible, that's not a good plan. Here's the interesting thing, though. God thinks that sort of thing might actually work because this story is about 18 to 24-year-olds, maybe even 15 to 24-year-olds. We're not sure exactly how young these guys are. They could have been as young as 15 or 16 when Daniel and his friends were called to Babylon, and yet they were faithful. They're an example to us of what it means to stay faithful in Babylon, and God invested in a plan of relying on the faithfulness of these Young men. So let's read from Daniel chapter 1. I'll read the first few verses of the story, um, and then we'll pause and pray, and then kind of unfold the rest of it as our morning proceeds. So let's start Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance 
and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Let me pray and ask God to teach us. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself, but we also believe that we need his Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to receive it. So let's pray for the Spirit to join us. God, we ask that your Spirit would help us to be listeners and learners, that you would teach us, that you would remove the distractions of the moment and of the time and of our own thoughts and of our own concerns, and you would help us to hear you and hear your voice speaking through your word. We believe that you have given it to us as a gift to learn from you and to see hope in you, and we pray that 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 would be true this morning. We pray that you'd be glorified, that, that we'd make much of you as we listen at your feet. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the big idea, the series is what to do when the world falls apart, but the big idea of chapter one is how to stay faithful in Babylon. What does it look like for us to stay faithful in Babylon? And I, I mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again, probably mentioned it several times. Just to be clear, we are not 600 BC Jewish exiles, right? We are not those historical people. We are different from them. This was a real story that happened in a real time and place, but we are exiles, If you have faith in Jesus, you are in exile. Now, if you don't have faith in Jesus, you're not in exile. This is your home, right? But for those of us that belong to God, those of us that belong to Jesus, this is not our true home. Our citizenship is not in this world or even in this country to the same extent that it is citizenship in heaven. That's what Philippians 3.20 says. Now, God places us in certain countries and places, and there's a sense that we are to be loyal and good citizens of the place, right? Like Jeremiah 29, last week, he said, invest in Babylon, love Babylon, serve Babylon, right? We're called to love and serve and be a part of this country that we live in. But our true citizenship, Philippians 3.20, our true citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's telling us during this time to invest as exiles. So in 1 Peter, 3, uh, 1 Peter 2, 11, Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners, we're outsiders, we don't really belong to this world, and as exiles, we're not really in our home, we're waiting for our true home. As foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So because we believe that God loves us and that Jesus has died for us and he's given us resurrection life, that empowers us to live differently, to live with hope in this world. Even though everything's crazy, we're on assignment. We're on mission here to live for God, to live for Jesus. So we're going to see this flesh itself out in in three parts as we move through the story, okay? The three main points are going to be, number one, trust that God gave us to Babylon. Trust that God gave us to Babylon. God is sovereign. We're going to see that repeated throughout this chapter, but really it's going to be a mega theme of the whole book of Daniel. God is sovereign. They're going to arise and fall great kings and kingdoms throughout history, but God is the ultimate king. So trust that God gave us to Babylon. Number two, resist the allure of Babylon. Resist the allure of Babylon. Babylon will constantly be calling to you to belong to it fully. And we have to resist the allure 
of Babylon. And then finally, intercede for Babylon. We're on mission. Just like Jesus, he was sent to this world. He didn't really belong to this world. He was from heaven. Jesus says in John 17 in the same way, we, we belong to him. We don't really belong to this world, but we are to intercede for this world. We're on mission, intercede for Babylon. So first point, trust that God gave us to Babylon. We're going to see this first point unfold in verses one through five. Just a little summary here of what we're going to read. We're going to see that in the short term, Babylon has defeated the city of God. And just recognize that just like in this moment, the bad guys are winning, we often feel that way too, right? We feel like the bad guys are winning, the world is falling apart. What's happening, God? Where are you? There's every reason for them to feel this way as well. It looks like the good guys are losing and the bad guys are winning. And that's pretty clearly what it says in the text. The city of God, Jerusalem, was besieged. It fell. Number two, uh, we'll notice it was common practice for emperors, and it was done in different ways in different empires, right? But it would be common practice for an emperor to take the best of from a society, right? So they'd fight a war, They'd kill some of the soldiers. Then they'd take some of the best young leaders and retrain them to be more a part of their society, right? To serve in their court, to be uh, some, you know, multi-ethnic group of the best and the brightest from every place the empire would conquer. And they would take that strength and that knowledge and it would make their own empire stronger, right? So that's kind of part of what we see taking place here too. Um, But then number three, even though it looks like the good guys are losing, even though it looks like the bad guys are winning, we recognize that this is something God is doing, that there's a a long game being played here, right? God has sovereign plans for his world, and it says specifically three times throughout our chapter, the Lord gave, God gave. So that's where I get the title for this main idea, trust that God gave us to Babylon. Okay, now let's read the text. See if what I said makes sense now. Verses one through five. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, that's what I was saying about the bad guys are winning. They've besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see that? That's shocking. God is at work here. Now, this is something we really struggle with theologically. And I just wanna say, we need to acknowledge the truth of the reality that God is sovereign without necessarily trying to solve all of the problems that that might bring up in our mind. The Bible repeatedly teaches that God is sovereignly moving through history. And the Bible also teaches that human beings are responsible actors. So if you're real philosophical, if you're real logical, you're gonna have this temptation to like drive real hard onto one of those or the other, right? Humans are totally responsible in such a way that God's not really totally sovereign. That, that's one extreme we go to in Christian history. Another extreme we can go to is God is so sovereign that human beings are not really all that responsible. We're basically kind of like puppets, like robots, right? The Bible doesn't really allow us to go to either of those extremes. I acknowledge that both of those extremes have a, a temptation coming from the world of logic. What we're saying is, God says both of these things are true. God is sovereign. Humans are responsible. He doesn't exactly explain how it all works out. We have to trust him on this one, right? But it gives us great hope repeatedly throughout scripture where we're told that God is sovereign. That gives us encouragement. We're like, oh, okay. The world's not actually spinning out of control. 
God gave me over to Babylon. God's got me on assignment. Do you see how that can be helpful? Trust that God gave us to Babylon. So it says, God gave, where is it? Uh, Verse two, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He also gave the symbols of their worship over to him as well. He brought them to the land of Shinar, the house of his God. He places the vessels in the treasury of his God, right? And so this was a way that ancient kings would would kind of display symbolically their power over the other empire. Hey, I've conquered you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal stuff out of your temple to show that my God is superior to your God. And then they take the symbols and they put it in their place of worship. And they're symbolizing, hey, we're in charge here now. We're, we're the rulers. Verse three, then the king commanded as his chief unit to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and then to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So again, Chaldean is a, just another word for Babylonian culture, another word for that. And so they're going to train them in Babylonian culture. They're finding the best of, right? It's, it's almost like a scholarship program, except they don't have any choice in the matter, right? <laughs> Imagine you applied for a scholarship and they said, oh, you won and you have no choice. You have to come now. And that's basically what happened. They took the best and the brightest out of Jerusalem. They would do this to all the places they would conquer. They forcibly removed them to Babylon. They're on assignment. King Nebuchadnezzar thinks they work for him, but we know the author is making it clear. No, they work for God. God has given them over to this situation. God is at work. Even though in our day-to-day moments and situations, we might ask the question, God, what are you doing? I don't understand what's happening here. We can trust big picture God is at work. God is sovereign. Do you see that? God is still in charge. God has given us over to Babylon. Goes on in verse five. The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So this is the plan. The plan is that they would be trained. Nebuchadnezzar's plan, the pagan king's plan, is that they would be trained and become the best of his culture and his society so he can bend his entire empire towards his will so that everybody would be on the same page and he could be the king of kings ruling all the nations, leading them in the direction that he wants them to go. But we know, because we are people of faith and because we've got the book that gives us the insight, right, of the editor, of the author saying, no, actually, actually God gave this power and this victory to Nebuchadnezzar. God was actually the one in charge here. So question number one, do you trust that God has given you over to Babylon? Do you trust... Acts chapter chapter 17 that says God has determined the places and the boundaries and the times for you and for I to live. Do we trust that? God is in charge. As it says in Esther, for such a time as this, you were made for this. Isn't that crazy? And you, like me, wake up some mornings and say, God, I don't really want to be made for this, right? (laughs) This is not the time and place I want to live in, honestly. But we regather ourselves, we talk to the Lord about it, we cry to him a little bit, and then we say, no, this is, I'm going to trust that this is what God has made me for. God has built me for this, to trust him, to serve him, to be on mission for him in this unique and strange time. I grabbed a picture of some people uh, backpacking. And I don't know if you've ever been on a journey where it was very difficult, and yet you had great perseverance, right? You had a goal 
and you're driving towards your goal. If you're backpacking and you're going somewhere really beautiful, you're trying to get to someplace really important, you can carry a heavy burden when you know why you're carrying it, right? Sometimes I would go shopping with my wife or my daughters, and I didn't really know when it would end. <laughs> I didn't know really what the goal was, and I just got to, as a as a helpful side, I just got to be clear, my wife is actually an unusual woman, doesn't like to shop, so the Lord has blessed me in this way. We don't do it very often. But when we do, I feel so much weaker, right? It's different than when like, hey, we're hiking, and it's going to be a long time, it's going to be really hard, but then we're going to make it to this mountaintop, and it's going to be awesome, right? I have this drive and this strength because I trust that there's this bigger mission in play, but sometimes I can be in a store and I'm like, where are the courtesy chairs, right? Like I can't stand any longer. I'm just, I'm sapped of energy. Well, if we can trust that God gave us to Babylon, that will give us a strength to carry the burdens that he, that he places on us. Does that make sense? Um, so I think our number, one, our number one application here is to believe, to trust that God truly is sovereign, not in a weird way of like, and then we give up and we don't do anything because he's completely sovereign and we're robots, we're puppets. I don't mean that. I mean trust that God is in control in such a way that it empowers us to act and to do what he's called us to do, to be faithful to him because we trust that he's at work and he is king. I believe that if we know this, if we trust that God's control in control, that's really the only way that we can thrive or survive in Babylonian culture. That's really the only way for us to survive or thrive through a Babylonian education, right? Do you see this? They're, they're being sent off to a Babylonian education. A lot of times we don't have this straight in our own culture. We think that the education of our culture is just kind of the way it goes. We don't really think about it and we don't really think we're sent on mission from God and we don't really recognize that the culture and the education is different from what God is calling us to and then we're all mixed up. It's all mushy. It's really better if we recognize this culture, this world is opposed to God. And yes, I'm called here. I'm called to invest. I'm called to love the Babylonians around me. I'm called to learn and read the books and get to know the culture. But I have to trust that I'm on a mission from God. That my whole goal is to not just melt into Babylonian culture. My goal is to be on a mission from him, trusting that he is really sovereign and accomplishing his purposes. Um, I think a good way to think about this is that We want to trust in something more than just a selfish salvation. We want to trust in something more than a just, oh, I get to go to heaven when I die because Jesus died for me. That's really important, but that's like the entry into our faith relationship with Jesus, right? Not only do we trust Jesus to save us from judgment, that's, that's so true and so good, but he wants to use us to communicate that message to other people. Do you see that? So it's not just a selfish salvation, but it's a, it's a purposeful salvation. God, God is saving us for a purpose. We belong to him. He's in charge. We trust that God has sent us on mission to Babylon. Jesus talks about this a lot in John 17. He says, the Father has sent me, so I'm sending my disciples. And then there are going to be others later that believe in what the disciples uh, have been saying and how they've been sent. And then those are going to be sent. Those are who we are, right? We're multiple generations down the line. But John 17 talks about this. Um, Another application, parents. Recognize that you're preparing your kids to be on mission in Babylon. Do you see that? 
Do you have the understanding that Babylon is a distinct culture from your culture, right? This world is not the culture of God. It's a different culture. And there are two extremes we often go to culturally. Christians historically have either completely assimilated. We just do whatever the world does. We don't even think about it. No discernment whatsoever, right? That's one extreme. Or Christians hide. And we form this like separate, closed-off community. and We have no interaction with the world. Remember the instructions last week from Jeremiah 29? He says, go ahead and invest. Live your normal lives and, and pray for the good of Babylon. Here, these guys are on assignment. They're being called to be educated in the language and literature of Babylon, but they're on a mission from God. They're to fulfill God's purposes. Parenting is training your kids to be educated in the language and literature of this world, but still have this diehard faith that they belong to God. And that's a hard line for us to walk, right? Because we're always slipping off both sides, right? We're slipping off into one side of, we belong to God, so we're not going to learn anything about our culture. Or we slip into the other side of, we're just going to totally assimilate into our culture, but we've forgotten that we're on assignment for God and we don't really belong to this culture. We have to walk those lines of, of being a missionary, being on mission from God. All Christians are missionaries, just like Jesus, right? John 17 talks about this. I'll come back to this more at the end, but also Philippians 2 tells us that he came from heaven. Everything was perfect in heaven, but he left heaven. He was in exile here. He lived obediently. He served God. He obeyed God. He did the right thing. He died for us. We're to follow that pattern. In Philippians 2, we're told we are to have the same mindset as Jesus. Trust that God has given you to Babylon. All right, next section, resist the allure of Babylon. Resist the allure of Babylon. We'll pick up again in verse 5, and this is where we see them uh, trying to not get defiled, not to get completely sucked into Babylonian culture. Um, And it'll take some explanation because this doesn't completely translate to our culture, but we'll try to bridge that gap. So back to verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at that time, they were to stand before the king. Okay, verse 5, just to clarify the language there, um, they're eating the food and wine from the king's table. It's more like they're eating at the king's restaurant is probably a better way to say that, right? It's not like just these four guys are sitting there, and he's like feeding them off of his plate. You know, it's not, it's not quite that uh, close. This is like, this is the king's great banquet food. And they get to be a part of the great lush food that the king is eating. So they're eating the king's food. They're drinking the king's wine. They're being brought into his inner circle. They're being enculturated. They're being assimilated. Do you see that? Uh, they're, They're being brought into the allure of Babylon. Babylon, the greatest city in the world. Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in the world. And you get to be a part of his inner circle. That would be pretty strong. That would be a pretty strong allure, wouldn't it? But we're called to resist the allure of Babylon. Verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, all of the tribe of Judah. So these were the young nobles. These were uh, educated men, smart men. They come from good families. They were wise, right? They had uh, won the scholarship to be brought in and to be retrained uh, of note. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but they all had names that that praised the Hebrew God. That's what their four names uh, would mean in Hebrew. Verse 7, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. 
Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. They're given Babylonian names. So they start off with names that praise the God of the Old Testament, praise our God. And then now they're being given Babylonian names that praise the Babylonian gods, right? So this is just another part of them trying to enculturate them. Babylon's going to try to rename you. Babylon is constantly going to be trying to give you a new identity. You belong to Babylon now. It's going to take great strength, great faith to resist the allure of Babylon. So verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So resolved. When Christy read the story for the kids earlier, she said a, a resolve, a resolution is a strong decision that somebody makes. What do you think about that? A strong decision. He resolved. I'm not going to give in. Uh, there's a famous theologian from early American history named Jonathan Edwards, and he's famous for, as a young man, as a teenager, making these kinds of resolutions. Resolved. I'm going to obey Jesus. Resolved. I'm going to think about the things of God. And you can Google this. He's got this long, long list of resolves, of resolutions from his journal. So Daniel resolved, verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. He's saying, um, it's my job to feed you the good food and to see you prosper and to do well. And if this all goes wrong, then I'm going to get in trouble, right? I'm going to have my head chopped off if I don't help you to, to really fulfill all the promise of the king's scholarship program. Well, Daniel go ahead and goes ahead and he works down the chain of command. It says, then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said to him this, test your servants, this is his wise proposal, Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he's like, okay, I get that if, if we don't eat the fancy food and then we look sickly, you're going to get in trouble. So how about this? How about just a 10-day test? Just feed us vegetables and water for 10 days and then compare. Just see how we look compared to the others that are eating the rich food from the king's restaurant. And let's, let's do a test. Let's run a trial. Verse 14, it says, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, just a little explanation here. We tend to think of fat as a negative word in our culture, but this may, may be a better way that we would translate is they were swole, right? Like they were getting beefed up. Think that, you know, teenage boys growing some muscles, right? They looked good. They looked large and healthy. They didn't look like they were wasting away. So compared to the others, they were actually looking stronger. They started to look the best. Verse 16, so the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. How about that? So he gave them vegetables. They looked good. The test worked. They were resisting the allure of Babylon. Now, what exactly was going on here? I think there are, there are a couple of things that this probably means, 
But then there's a third thing that I think is the most important piece here. First thing is they believed in what we would call kosher eating, which means they were obeying Old Testament symbolic food laws, whereby the Old Testament people of God would symbolize in their worship, in the way they lived, in the way they dressed, in the way they eated, they would symbolize God's purity and holiness, and that their goal was to be separate from sin. Now, we don't have to symbolize that in the same way. The entire book of Hebrews lays out that now that Jesus has fulfilled all of our purity, now we are sinless because Jesus has died for our sins. We no longer have to act out the symbols anymore because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those symbols, right? So we're no longer old, under that old covenant. We're under the new covenant now, so we don't fulfill all those symbols. But Daniel is still under that old covenant. And so it makes sense that part of this was he didn't want to eat in ways that would symbolize that he belonged to this new system or new religion. He wanted to maintain loyalty to the old religion. Um, What's confusing is he refused the wine too, and wine would not have violated those rituals. So then some scholars say, well, maybe it's not so much about kosher eating. Maybe this is more about food that was offered to idols. That comes up in the New Testament, right? Like if, if everything in the king's restaurant is offered, you know, in bowing down to Marduk or these other Babylonian gods, then maybe he just says, I don't want to have anything to do with a restaurant, you know, whose everything's cooked in honor to false gods, right? So that makes sense as well. And that might be a part of what's happening here. But again, it's kind of confusing because he's still eating some of the food, right? Like probably the water and the vegetables were also offered to those false gods. So I think there's some truth in those first two ideas, but I think the main thing is an act of will, Again, just king on this word resolve. He's resolving. He's making a strong decision to not give in to the lush lifestyle. I think really what's going on here, this is more about a free will decision to fast, to live simply, to not just get in, sucked in to the party lifestyle of the University of Babylon, right? Which is crazy to us, right? Because in our culture, we think, well, that's, that's what college is for, right? To go live a wild life and party. Well, well, not if you're faithful to God. No, you say, even if I'm in college, even if I'm in this Babylonian place where it's all about partying, it's all about doing whatever feels good, I still have to not defile myself. I still have to remain faithful to God. And that's what we're seeing lived out in the faith of these young men. So I believe this is a resisting of the allure of Babylon. I grabbed a picture of a horse with blinders on. Have y'all ever seen horses, uh, maybe a, a horse that's pulling a cart or maybe a horse in a horse race, they're, they'll put blinders on. I think they're also sometimes called blinkers. Do you know why they put these on the horse? This is so that the horse will not be distracted by everything else, right? This is to help the horse focus on the goal. Just anatomically, the way horses are built, their eyes are on the side of their head so they can see everything around them, right? That keeps them safe. And the jockey says, well, I want him to really focus on the goal. So I'm going to put blinders on him and have him focus. I think in a sense, that's what Daniel's doing here. Daniel's saying, I want to focus myself on being faithful to God in Babylon. I don't want to get sucked into this rich lifestyle where I start getting spoiled. I start getting fat and lazy and just kind of loving Babylonian culture because I'm drinking their wine and I'm eating their food and I'm having, you know, the the steak buffet and just all the great food. I'm just, you know what I'm going to do? We're just going to eat vegetables and drink water. We're going to live a simple life. What's fascinating about this is I think this is Daniel living out 
a free will devotion to God, not necessarily just obeying a rule. Again, there's maybe some rules, maybe some kosher stuff was a part of that, but there seems to be really a passion here from his heart, a desire to serve God. He resolved. So just like a jockey resolves to win and then put blinders, puts blinders on his horse to resist distractions, right? In the same way, we should resolve to be faithful to God and then take steps to resist distractions, things that might draw us away, the allure of the world that we're uh, drawn into. Um, so number one application, I would challenge you right where you are right now, resolve in your own heart, pray to God, God, I resolve to be faithful to you. You could pray that silently right now. God, I resolve to follow you. And you might want to follow up later with them, do business again with the Lord, right? Because I just told you to do this. It's got to be from your heart. You got to want to do this. When I was 17 and I first started walking with Jesus, I made a prayer like that. It was kind of funny looking back on it now. Um, that was 30 years ago. I'm 47 now, right? So at 17, I remember being at a Christian camp and resolving, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm giving my life completely to you. I'm going to do where, whatever you say, and I'm going to go wherever you tell me to go. Even though, Jesus, I know it's going to be terrible, right? Like that was my, <laughs> that was my thinking, It's like, Jesus, I resolve to follow you, even though I know it's going to be really hard and my life is going to be full of suffering and pain now, right? The Lord in his kindness reassured me, gave me great joy in following him. Now, there has been suffering as well, but there's been great joy. It's worth it. That's what I want to say to you. 30 years of walking with Jesus, has there been pain? Yeah, but there's also been joy and it's been worth it. No regrets. Resolve to be faithful to your king. And then take steps to resist. Resist the allure of Babylon. And I'm just going to give you a laundry list because we're running out of time. But here's a laundry list of ways that you can resist the world that we live in, the Babylon that we live in. Number one, resist social media. Social media is addictive. We know more and more psychological reports are coming out where it was actually designed by psychologists, psychiatrists to be addictive. And then guess what? It worked. It is addictive. And so we keep running back to it. We're interested in what it has to say. And there's some kind of, you know, ping of endorphins or whatever it is in our brain. Brain chemistry gets all wired up in there. It's addictive. Resist it. Break the addiction. That doesn't mean, again, isolate yourself completely from the culture. We want to stay involved in the culture, but what are some ways that you could put limits on it? Say, I'm only going to do uh, these things at these times, right? Or I'm going to turn off notifications, or I'm going to you know, put the phone in a basket at dinner time. Whatever it may be, resist the allure of Babylon through social media. Secondly, politics, right? We're in a hot, crazy political time right now. Resist the allure of Babylon through politics to think that all our answers come through politics. I'm not saying don't have convictions. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying throw out your views and never argue and never be involved. I'm just saying resist the allure to think that all the answers lie in politics. We need to be faithfully involved, right? We need to study the platform, study the candidates, pray, seek wisdom from the Lord, but resist the allure to think that the answer is in politics because the whole, the whole message of Daniel is going to be God is king. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall. They're up and down. They blow in the wind, but, but God is king. So resist the allure of politics. Entertainment. Again, 
entertainment can be okay. We can learn great things from stories. We can enjoy stories. It can be fun. But don't let yourself be addicted to it. Don't get sucked into the allure of Babylon through entertainment. Again, set limits and boundaries and resist the idolatry and addiction. Sexual immorality. This is one of the kind of number one commandments we break the most in our culture, I would say, right? Um, It's the one that we're most open about breaking. I've said this before. I think every culture takes the Ten Commandments and says, we like seven or eight of them, and then we're going to throw out two or three. That's what most cultures do. In our culture, the one we've thrown out most actively is the commandment against adultery. And so remember that God, as the true king, has a different rule about sexuality. Sexuality is is a gift for the bonding of a husband and wife and heterosexual covenant marriage, um, but it's not meant to be uh, engaged in or indulged in in any other way. So again, we have to set boundaries to resist the allure of Babylon. That's one of the ways that we can be metaphorically eating from the king's table and being lured in to you know, what seems like the good life, but in the end, it's not going to be good for us. So again, set boundaries, find accountability partners, put filters on your phone so you're not engaging in uh, pornography or you're not engaging in inappropriate relationships uh, with others. Set boundaries, resist the allure. And then finally, food and drink. Um, That's where we started with this, right? Like for him, that's where the playing field is. It's about the food. Same thing for us. We live in a world where even the poorest of us are eating from the king's table right? Like our world is such a world of rich food. That's an easy addiction to fall into. What does it mean to resist that allure, to maybe eat more simply? Again, not falling off into the deep end of becoming, you know, crazy about your food and always being on a diet. But what does it look like to just eat simply and not be sucked into that allure of our culture, being spoiled by it, um, letting it become a false idol, a place of security and salvation for us. Um, I think a good positive way to think about this is what if you saved your richest food just for Sabbath worship, Bible study night, birthday parties, right? What if we still indulged in food from the king's table, but we saved it for those special occasions and made it a part of our joyful celebration of God's goodness at holidays and worship days? What if we engaged in food that way, and we began to resist the allure of Babylon. Okay, the last point is that we are to intercede for Babylon. We're to intercede for Babylon, right? We're on mission. We belong to God. He sent us uh, to bless Babylon. Look at verse 17. We'll wrap up with this section, finish out the chapter. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Nice little finishing note. This is kind of an introduction to the whole book. So we're going to end, you know, Daniel's going to finish out his career several kings later with King Cyrus, even a different empire, a different place even. And so again, this is just one more reminder. God is king. The kingdoms that we belong to, 
the places we live, those are going to change. Those are going to come and go, right? Those of you in the army know, yeah, places I live, those are going to come and go. Those are going to change, but God will always be in charge. And it's really interesting. He says that they were 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom. 10 times better. Isn't that interesting? It's a little uh, word play there because it was for 10 days that they were tested. And now we see that they were 10 times better. And also just 10 times is, is kind of like the way in their culture of just saying a bajillion, you know, or way better. It's just, they just superseded everybody else. They, they were the best. They were the wisest because God was with them, because God was using them. And so what happens is they then get put in place as the top advisors in the top greatest empire, arguably one of the greatest empires that's ever existed. And they're top advisors because their faithfulness to God is part of it. But, but more than that, because of God's sovereign desire to have them there interceding. Isn't this amazing? God sent them on mission, just like he sends us as foreigners and exiles, it says in 1 Peter 2.11, just like he leaves us here as citizens truly of heaven, so we're like ambassadors of heaven right now. That's our job. That's our role. Jesus says in John 17, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. That's what God is up to. And so these guys are priests who are interceding. Uh, we're told in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So just to be clear, um, most of us will not specifically get called to be, you know, inner circle advisors to the greatest king that's ever lived, right? Most of us won't. Maybe a couple of you will. Most of us won't. But we are, as followers of Jesus, all this holy chosen people. We are a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? What is a priest's job? I think a lot of times we, we go to all the like ritual stuff, all the culturally different stuff, right? Like we have a very casual church as pastor. I, I use the term shepherd pastor for my role or teacher. I don't usually use the term priest. Uh, so you might think of maybe a more uh, strict Christian denomination that uses the word priest and they have a lot of more like symbolic stuff they do. Or you might even think of Old Testament priests and they had a lot more rituals than we do today. But just essentially, what was the priest's role? In the Old Testament, the priest's role was to represent God to the people and represent the people to God, to intercede. That is your job. Your job is to represent God to Babylon and represent Babylon to God. Your job is to intercede for Babylon. That's what we're made for. As the people of God, we intercede See this in 1 Peter 2.9, we're a kingdom of priests. We intercede for others. We step in the gap. And so a way we'd say that in modern language is we pray and we talk. I think those are the two simple words. We pray to God. I represent Babylon to God. I pray to God on behalf of Babylon. I pray, as Jeremiah 29 said in the letter to the exiles, I pray for the welfare of my city. 
I pray for my neighbors and my family members. Who are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Who are you praying expectantly for? Who are you praying knowing that the God of the universe works supernaturally and when you pray for people, crazy things will begin happening? Who are you praying for? Are you representing the people of Babylon, the people of our world to God as a priest, interceding for them? And then, going the other way, we intercede with the people. Who are we talking to? Who are we talking to? Proclaiming the excellencies of our God, right? We're telling God about the people. We're praying for them, asking God for their good and his glory. And then we're telling the people about God. Who are you praying for when you pray to God? Who are you talking to when you talk about God? Who's on your list? Is this a disciplined habit in your life? Is it random? Is it only when someone asks you to pray for them that you pray for them? Have you made a list? Are you praying for your family members? Are you praying for your coworkers? Are you praying for your neighbors? Start somewhere. You might be overwhelmed. I just threw out a bunch of names, right? Like a bunch of options. You're like, that's 100 people. Slow down. Just start making a list, right? Maybe pray for different people on different days. Maybe devote yourself to to pray with your family at the table. Maybe to pray for your neighbors in other situations. But, But start, start somewhere praying for the people that God has called you to. We intercede for Babylon. That is... That is our our role. That's our vocation. That's our calling, right? We may not be in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, but we have just as important of a vocation. As believers in Jesus, we believe that he set us free from sin and death. And that translates into our life as we are just one poor beggar showing other poor beggars where to find bread. And that's in Jesus himself. He is the bread of life. He is our hope of salvation. He's the one that took our sins upon himself and freely gives us his resurrection life. Do you trust him? If you trust him, it'll translate into being on mission for him. Not just a selfish salvation, but a, but a purposeful salvation. So what do we do when the world falls apart? Well, well, we are to stay faithful in Babylon. When it looks like the city of God has been defeated and Babylon has won, What are we to do? Stay faithful in Babylon. Recognize that God has got this long-term plan he is working on. And part of his plan is to rely on 18 to 24-year-olds to be responsible and to be faithful to him. But not not just 18 to 24-year-olds, right? It's not just about teenagers going to the University of Babylon. This is about you and me, the old people as well. It's about all of us. Staying faithful to God, being responsible in the calling that is given us, saying, yeah, Jesus loves me, so I'm going to love the people around me. So we've got to trust that God gave us to Babylon, resist the allure of Babylon, and then intercede for Babylon. And we see the, the fullest reality of this in Jesus Christ, who in John 17, go back and read John 17, says very clearly, Father, I recognize that you sent me into this world, and in the same way, I'm sending my people And that includes us. We're sent by Jesus. Stay faithful in Babylon. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. We thank you that you love us so much that you've proven it by dying on a cross for our sins, by rising from the dead, breaking the power of sin and death over this world. 
And so God, as we wait here, as we wait for our citizenship to be full as we're back home in heaven, we recognize that you've got us on mission. You have a job for us to do. So God, we, we long for it to be over. We wish things weren't so crazy. We cry in our, our pain and our sickness and in our brokenness. But we recognize that even in our brokenness, even in our sickness, even in our pain, as we long and wait for you to return, you've got a job for us to do. Help us to testify, to proclaim to your goodness, even in the midst of such a crazy world. When the world falls apart, Father, help us to trust you, to honor you. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.